I'd like you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Romans, to the eighth chapter. As I get older, I more and more appreciate the privilege of assembling together with the Lord's people, and I more and more appreciate the privilege of assembling with you, engaging in the prayers of confession, the readings of the statements of assurance, confessing the faith together, singing together, praying together. It is wonderful to be here with you. And it's wonderful to have the Bible for us to turn to now with the hope that the Lord will come and minister to us through his word. This passage in Romans chapter 8 is surely one of the most precious in the entire Bible. The whole chapter is devoted to the subject of comforting the people of God, giving assurance, confidence, and assurance to the people of God. The chapter begins with this statement, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends by saying, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It begins and ends with the best of statements, and it is full of more and more of those kinds of assuring statements. In the middle of the chapter, the Apostle Paul introduces the idea of suffering. In the context of all this glory, he introduces the subject of suffering. I'd like you to look, please, at chapter 8, verse 17, where he writes, If children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, and here's the introduction, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. And then he says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I'd like you to, in your mind at least, to underscore that language in the, this present time. Most commentators think that the Apostle Paul is using that almost as a technical term, this present time. There's an age to come, but there is this present time in which we live. And what the Apostle Paul is going to introduce us here is the subject of suffering in the present time. And from here until the end of the chapter, he gives us what we could easily consider to be principles or perspectives on this present time. Perspectives that should govern us and influence us and indeed carry us along in this present time. And so what I'd like us to do this morning is look at what I think are five rather large principles or perspectives that the people of God should have at the front of our thinking in this present time regarding suffering. Let me list these for you, and you could no doubt come up with better language. This is, this probably, well, this is one of the richest passages in the entire Bible. So if all of you went to studying it, you would perhaps come up with different ways to, to uh, describe and to give headings. So I'm going to give you what I've got, and you might come up with something better, but there are at least these five perspectives. The first is that the whole creation is groaning. The whole creation is groaning while it eagerly expects its deliverance. The second heading is that God's children groan. It's not just the creation, but that God's children groan while they too are eagerly awaiting their redemption. The third perspective is that God's spirit groans. The creation groans, children of God groan. God's spirit groans with God's overwhelmed children as he helps them. 
The fourth perspective is that God will work all things together for good to those who love him. And the fifth is that God will let nothing separate us from his salvation and from his love, which are in Christ Jesus. Now, those are also the five points of the sermon. And I expect to spend more time on the first three than the last two, because I think the last two are probably more well-known to us, even though the last two are the heaviest in terms of, of glorious statements. This is going to be an overview. If you've ever studied this chapter, you realize that you could stay in this chapter a really long time, thinking, meditating. If you're a preacher, you could be preaching it. If you're, you, there's just so much you could, you could learn and so much time you could spend in this passage. So this is going to be an overview. It's going to be very much of an overview. It's going to be like a child that's running to a lake with a little bucket, and the child runs to the lake and scoops out a bucket of water, takes it back to his garden, pours it on the garden. Another, it's like we're going to get five little buckets out of this great lake, and the lake is going to hardly be touched, these five little buckets. But it is my hope we'll take those little buckets and pour them on our souls, and that God will give us stability and encouragement from the principles in this passage. So the first is that the whole creation, God's creation, the whole creation groans while eagerly waiting its deliverance. Follow with me as I read chapter 8, verse 18 again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. The focus in this passage, of course, is upon the creation. In chapter 1 and 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul wrote about the degeneration of human beings. This passage is not so much about human beings. This is about the non-human creation. And the picture is that this non-human creation is personified. But it's a reference to the earth and the animals and the planets and the oceans and the water creatures and the rocks and the hills and the streams and the lakes and the ponds and the mountains and, and the forests. It's, it's a reference to the non-human creation. And the text says that, number one, that this non-human creation is in anguish. Verse 20, it says the creation was subjected to futility, subjected to vanity. It's, the creation is subjected to frustration. God has done that. God has subjected the creation to futility and to frustration. Verse 21 says that the creation is in the bondage of corruption, the bondage of death, the bondage of decay, the bondage of decomposition, the bondage of ruin. And it's verse 22 that says in that setting, the congregation is groaning. Now in the original, the, the Apostle Paul used two verbs and some of the translations translate these two verbs. Some translations kind of run them together. But in the original, there's two verbs that the creation is groaning, lamenting, sighing, 
together. It's the idea that all of its parts are like a great chorus, sighing, groaning, lamenting together. And the second word is to, to travail together, to be in agony together, to be in a crisis together. Sometimes it's used in reference to childbirth, but it's not limited to that. It's the idea that there's that all the parts of the creation, they're in agony, they're in travail together. They're groaning and they're travailing. It's a painful picture that is described for us. It is, of course, a personification. It's a picture of the creation as having a sense that is not like it should be, that is not like it was meant to be, that it's in agony and it's, it's as if the creation is saddened. And if you step away from the personification and you think literally what does it mean, it means literally that now the creation suffers earthquakes and it suffers famines and it suffers droughts and disease and pollution. It suffers the poisoning of the rain and the poisoning of the lakes and the streams. The creation now is full of death and decay and degeneration. All of that permeates the creation. And the creation is pictured as groaning. It's also in this text pictured as eagerly expecting deliverance. Again, it's a personification. But the picture of, this, of the creation breaking down, decaying, being ruined in agony, at the same time, the creation is said to be expecting its deliverance. In verse 19, it's interesting to say, what, does the, what is the expectation? What is the focus of the expectation? According to verse 19, the creation is so eager to see what? To see the revelation of the children of God. The creation is so eager to see what the redeemed people of God are going to look like. If you, again, you think in terms of personification, what does the creation see when it sees us? It sees us breaking down just like it is. When the creation looks at us, the children of God, it sees that we are groaning too. But it's looking forward to that day when, when, the, when what we are will actually be revealed to the creation. According to verse 20, the reason that the creation has this expectation is that the creation knows that when God subjected the creation to futility, he did it in the context of a word of hope. You remember that in Genesis chapter 3? The earth would have heard God say to Adam, cursed be the ground for your sake. Adam, the ground, God says, cursed be the ground for your sake. It was subjected to futility at that point. But the whole, the whole speech of God in that context is to let Adam know that one day the seed of the woman is going to come and one day the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent and bring a deliverance. That's what's referred to in verse 20. That the creation was subjected to futility in the context of the hope which God actually gave in the statements of Genesis chapter 3. So here is the creation groaning but with this awareness that there's a rescue coming. Now, Paul is using personification. He's using his imagination. He's asking us to use our imagination. Well, let your imagination run just for a moment on this general theme. What did the earth know? Well, the earth knew what it was like to be perfect. The earth knew what it was like originally, where everything was in harmony and everything was beautiful and everything was right, and it provided a perfect environment for human beings to live, and it provided a perfect environment for human beings to glorify God and for God to meet with his people. It was a wonderful thing for the, for the earth. The earth did hear that. Cursed be 
the ground, and then the earth began to die, and it began to produce weeds and thorns and thistles and became a hostile environment for human beings. And the ages passed, waiting, the earth is waiting for this seed of the woman to come, the ages pass, nothing seems to be happening, and then God raises up prophets, and prophets who said that that's, the Christ will come one day, and he will establish a new heavens and a new earth, and the lion and the lamb will play together, and the child will play in a snake's den. There'll be harmony, and, and it waits, and it waits. The creation waits, and it waits. And at one point, the creation was touched by the feet of the Son of God, and he walked upon the earth. And the creation felt the drops of the blood of God, the blood of Jesus, as he hung upon the cross. And the creation held the body of the Son of God for three days and three nights, and then Christ broke the bonds of death. He broke the bonds of corruption and rose from the grave. And if you carry out that personification, surely the world rejoiced, the earth rejoiced, the ground rejoiced when the Son of God came out, and now the creation is still waiting. The creation witnessed the creation, it witnessed the fall, it, it witnessed the prophets, it witnessed the coming of the Son of God and the death and resurrection of the Son of God, and that resurrection is its hope. It's, the, it's what gives the creation certainty that it actually will be redeemed. Now, the second perspective from this passage is that God's children also groan in anguish while eagerly expecting their redemption. Look at the verses, verse 23 through 25. Verse 23, not only that, but we also, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Not only that. Not only is it the creation that is groaning, not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Does it seem incongruous? Does it seem inappropriate to you? Does it seem this, is, this could be right? That the people of God are groaning just like the creation is groaning? Think of the privileges of God's people. It doesn't seem to be right to think that we who have such immense privileges are groaning just like the creation without those privileges. But that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is trying to stress here. We do live in a day when there are some Christian teachers who act as if you're a child of God, you'll be exempt from all the ordinary sufferings of the, of the, of the creation. And Paul is taking pains. I mean, he's using language and phrases to very directly confront that mistake. We're supposed to understand this. In this present time, we're supposed to understand that we are groaning just like the creation is groaning. Even we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, if we have been studying the whole passage in Romans chapter 8, this passage says a, whole, a great deal about the ministry of the Spirit to us. Christian people are people who are indwelt by God's Spirit. Christian people are led by God's Spirit. Christian people enjoy the ministry of the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. He bears witness with our spirits. that we, Even having that, even with, with all those privileges 
the first fruits, so to speak, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, even having that, we ourselves groan within ourselves just like the creation. So let me restate those two points. Number one, Christians groan with anguish in the present time. Verse 23a, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting. We groan because the creation groans. We groan because we participate. The creation and the children of God all participate in something of the same corruptions. We who have the Holy Spirit suffer the effects of pollutions and poisons and death and deformities and cancers and diseases just like the rest of the creation. We lament, we the people of God lament because we have stillborn children like the rest of creation. We and our loved ones suffer dementia and arthritis and cancer and liver failure and heart attacks and diabetes. God's children suffer famine and earthquakes and fires and pestilence and pandemics. We participate in the trials and the travails and the agonies that are common to all the creation. Now we suffer in other ways. We suffer the effects of our sins. We suffer the effects of the sins of others. We suffer, some, some of God's people suffer awful persecutions. There's a bigger picture, but this, the focus here is that we, the people of God, suffer along with the creation, and it is an agony for us. It is an agony for us. At the same time, this text says that even so, Christians are animated by hope while they groan. They are eagerly waiting. They are eagerly waiting while they are groaning. It says that they are eagerly waiting for what? The people of God are supposed to be thoughtfully, eagerly waiting for their adoption, for, their, for the redemption of their bodies. Now, those are two ideas, right? But they're, they're meant to be put together here. There's going to be an element of our adoption that is richer and full and complete when our bodies have been redeemed. Now, that's not very difficult to imagine, isn't it? Is it? We, we have this relationship. We are adopted. We are the children of God. The Spirit does bear witness with our, with our spirits that we are the children of God. He is the Spirit of adoption to us. But in this body and in this life, there are so many ways that we fail the Lord. There are so many ways that we are just inadequate, incompetent to please Him in all the ways that we want to please Him, that there is something yet of a distance in our experience as children to our Heavenly Father. But there is coming a day when the bodies will be redeemed and there'll be nothing. There'll be nothing within us, nothing within our bodies, nothing within our psychology. There'll be nothing within us that is a barrier to this fullest sense, this fullest awareness of being children of our Heavenly Father. And that's, what, that's what's animating our hope here, that we're groaning with all of this, but we're eagerly waiting this future when we have the fullness of adoption in the context of the resurrection of the body. There is a third perspective that, in this passage. The first is that the creation groans and expects. The second is that even the children of God groan within ourselves as we're waiting for the adoption and the resurrection of the body. The third is that God's spirit groans. And this is not language that we might think that we might choose, 
The language, it's God's language. The language might seem to somehow diminish the spirit, but the spirit is said to be grieved. The spirit can be quenched, he can be grieved. And in this passage, again personified, the spirit is said to groan. Look at the text, verse 26. Likewise, the spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he, the Spirit, makes intercessions for the saints according to the will of God. The first sentence, the first line of verse 23 is just that simple statement, likewise the Spirit also helps in our weakness. The word that is translated helps is the idea of like join together. You, know, you see somebody who's falling down, you go to help them, you put your arms around them, you lift them up, you join together with them. That's the, that's the language here. The Spirit helps. He, he joins together with us. He helps us in our weaknesses. Here we are groaning. There's all kinds of weaknesses that we're experiencing, that we're feeling. In our weaknesses, He helps us. Then he moves, Paul moves, from this general statement about the Spirit helping us in our weakness to the specific weakness that he has in mind. It's a weakness regarding our prayers because, he says, there are some situations where we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Literally, that would be translated, we don't know how to, what to pray for to the degree that is necessary. The, the, the literal idea here is that Paul's expressing is there are situations that are so overwhelming that we don't know how to pray in the way that is necessary, to the degree that is necessary. We don't have the vision, we don't have the faith, we don't have the perseverance, we don't have the fervency, we don't have something that would be necessary to adequately pray, to pray in the way that is needed in the given situation. And it's into that situation that the text says, That the Spirit Himself, this is the Spirit Himself, it's not the Spirit helping us to pray, it's the Spirit praying. It's wonderful that the Spirit does help us to pray, but that's not here. This is something that the third person, the Trinity, does, that the Spirit Himself makes intercessions, and He makes those intercessions with groanings that are not utterable, with groanings that are unutterable, that with groanings that would be known to the Spirit, and you learn, you learn from the next phrases that there are groanings that are understood by God, but they're not groanings, they're not groanings that we comprehend. Now think of that. That's, that's literally the picture here, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He's sensitive to us. When we are groaning, He groans with us. He makes intercessions with groanings in His own inner being. The text goes on to say that not only does the Spirit make these, these intercessions for us, but God understands them. God know who knows the mind, who knows the heart. He knows the Spirit. He knows the Spirit is praying according to the will of God. And so God the Father hears these, these sympathetic, almost pathetic intercessions of the groaning of the Holy Spirit. This text is like a, just a little flap that is opened. You imagine some kind of a great immense, overwhelmingly beautiful scene on the other side of a curtain. 
and there's just a little bit, a little flap that's opened, just enough for you to be awed by what's there. Well, this is not something that the Bible explains. You'd like works. This is not something that the Bible explains except here, that the Spirit is actually engaged in sympathetic, groaning intercessions for us. In, in verse 34 of this chapter, Paul makes the statement that the Lord Jesus Christ intercedes for us. And you do have more information about that in various parts of the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 4 and then in chapter 7, you have information about what is Jesus cannot help but be touched with the feelings of our weakness. And being touched with the feelings of our weakness, he intercedes for us tenderly, successfully. It's the same idea here. It is the Spirit who's groaning with us, sympathetic with us, expressing petitions to the Father that the, that the Father hears and that the Father answers. Well, it is a mysterious, it is a, it is a big mystery behind this little flap that has been opened for us. But it has been opened for us. And we may not have a very perfect understanding of what this whole picture is. But it's given to us. It's given to us to put our minds on. It's given for us to hope in. It's given for us to be an awareness that when we are so overwhelmed that we don't know how to pray as we ought to pray, as the situation demands, the Spirit is doing something. And we don't have to understand that perfectly to be helped by that, right? How many children, how many three or four-year-old children really understand the help that their parents are giving to him? But they don't really need to understand to enjoy it. And I think this is a case like that. We may not really understand what's, what is actually going on behind this text, but we have this text. We're supposed to believe this text. We're supposed to use this text to glory God, glorify God and for the stability of our own souls. The fourth perspective, the first is that the creation groans. The second is that the children of God groan. The third is that the Spirit groans as he, with us, as he helps us. And the fourth, of course, is that God will work everything together for good. Now that might, this verse 28 might be one of the first passages you ever learned. It would, it would, I think it would be for me one of the first passages that I ever learned, verse 28. And we know, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Heavy words here. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. In various uh, copies of the Bible that I've owned over the years, the we do not know, in verse 26 has been underlined, we do not know. And in verse 28, we know, I've also underlined it. Lots of Bibles always, always underline that. Because in my experience, there's lots of times when I don't know how to adequately respond to suffering. I don't really know how to adequately pray. We don't know. But when we don't know, when we're overwhelmed and we don't know we don't know how to even approach God about this situation. There's something we do know. We know, always know, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him 
I, I assume that many of you have studied this passage, memorized this passage, heard sermons on this passage, and so I'm not going to, our little bucket is just going to dip into this passage. Just observe the obvious things. All things work together. God will work everything together. All things, even our sins, our reversals, the things that disquiet us, that's the context here, things that disquiet us, sufferings that we hardly know how to handle, the groanings, all these things. God will work them. He will work all things together for good. You know, you can fill in the blank, what is the good? You can imagine all sorts of things. We're most safe to stay with the context if we ask ourselves, what is the good? In the context, the good is God's purpose for us, and what is that? His purpose is that we be conformed to the image of His Son. And in my understanding, that's, that's the specific good. Now, you can have larger things here, but that's... This is, this is the good that God has saved us for, that we would be the, f- the firstborn among many brethren, that we would be like the Lord Jesus Christ, and for Him, for Jesus, we would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's the good. That's larger, of course, but that's at the heart of the good, that the Lord is going to work all these things, all these things overwhelm us, all these things that seem grand, all these things that seem distressing. He's going to work everything to that to help us to be more and more and more and more and more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just for us. That's for the Lord's sake. So that the Lord would be the firstborn among many brethren. So that the Lord would have this great family. And He's the firstborn. He's the preeminent one. He, he's all, all these brothers and sisters, all, all this family, all these people that love God. He's going to be the first in eminence among them. Well, we're supposed to have that in our minds, that everything that happens in God's will and in God's purposes and with God's manipulation of all these things, He is going to bring that good to us, and that's meant to motivate us and to animate us and to stabilize us. Now, if you know this passage, you know those worlds of ideas we're just going to pass over. So, they come to the fifth, the, the fifth perspective. The first is the creation groans. The second is God's children groan. The third is the spirit groans. The fourth is God promises to work all things together for good. And now the fifth is that God will let nothing separate us from his salvation and his love, which are in Christ Jesus. And you can bring your best efforts to the rest of this passage, to Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and following. It is one of the most amazing texts in the whole Bible. It starts, verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? And some people think this goes back to the very beginning of the book. Other people think it primarily goes back to the things that are said in in Romans chapter 8. What shall we say to these things, is what Paul says. Here you have the situation where the world is groaning and the children of God are groaning and the Spirit's groaning and God's promised to work everything together for good and he's promised that in the context of he is certainly going to work out that chain of salvation that we skipped over. What can we say to these things? It seems like Paul doesn't know exactly how to answer his question because he asks five more questions. His response to this question, what shall we say to these things? His response is to ask 
five more questions. And these five questions really direct us to the heart of, the Christian, of Christian salvation. Just look at your Bibles, and I'm going to just step through these verses. Verse 31 again, what shall we say to these things? Here's the first question. Who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? The second question is in verse 32. How will he not freely, how will God not freely give us all things with Christ? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him, with his son, freely give us all things? How would it, it's not possible. How, how could anyone imagine that he would not freely give us all things with his son? Third question is verse 33, who is he, verse, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Now, there may be a lot of people and spiritual beings even who would bring charges against God's elect. The point is, how could anyone be successful? How could anyone sustain a charge? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And if God cancels our sins, if God cancels our sins and declares us to be right, what being in the universe would have any success in making a charge against us? The fourth question is similar in verse 34. Who is he who condemns? Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is at the right hand of God and who also makes intercessions for us. You see these elements of the gospel that Paul's just bringing together in these little staccato shot questions? Who is it going to, who can condemn us? When Christ has died for us and when Christ has been risen from the dead and he's presently at the right hand of God making intercessions for us, who in the moral universe could stand up against that. His death, Jesus' death, was perfectly adequate to free us from every condemnation. His ongoing intercession is perfectly adequate and certain to keep us in the faith. The fifth question leads to an explosion. The fifth question is in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And it's like Paul's mind just explodes at this point. Seven more questions, little, little short questions. Who shall separate us from the love of God, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, will any of them be able to separate us from the love of Christ? Quote Psalm 44, as it is written, it's like a no-brainer. We should have all known this, Psalm 44. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yes, in all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, Paul, this book is written in roughly 57 A.D., the book of Romans, written roughly 57 A.D. He had not long before this written the letters of First and Second Corinthians, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he writes about his sufferings. He experienced everything, each of these seven things, with the exception perhaps of famine, he experienced these things and many more things. He wrote this in 57 AD roughly. 
Nero's persecutions in Rome are going to begin in 64 AD, perhaps seven years after Paul writes this letter. Paul's, laying a, Paul's expressing his confidence about himself and his own sufferings. He's laying the foundations for those. None of this stuff can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But he's saying more than that. He's not only saying that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the salvation that God is determined to bring to us fully. Nothing can. It's more, it's more than that. It's we are more than conquerors through this. It's not simply that we'll be sustained. It's not simply that we're going to be kept in the love of God. There, there's a response to this, and the response should be that we're not just hanging on, but that we're more than conquerors. Look at the language. Yea, in all these things, this is verse 37, yea, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, I would like to say just a few things in rather rapid fire closing. You appreciate we just took our little buckets here. There's lots of stuff left in the lake that you need to go take bigger buckets and draw for your souls. But my goal was to get this larger picture in front of you, that we'd be thinking about all five of these perspectives. The whole creation is groaning. Children of God are groaning. Spirit groans with us. God's promised to work all things together for good, and God has determined that nothing can separate us from his salvation and from his love. Now, just these concluding remarks. The first is to say what I trust is obvious, and that is that suffering is common to all human experience, and it's common to all Christian experience. It's common. If you suffer, don't think that you've been singled out for some kind of special hardness. Don't think that God has turned his eye from you or his heart from you. Suffering is the common experience of human beings. It's the common experience of the creation of human beings and of the people of God. It's an axiom, right? It's an axiom that re requires no further proof than observation. All great literature involves human suffering. Poems, songs, biographies, histories, social commentaries, they all, in one way or another, focus on the sufferings that are universal, and they are universal for the people of God as well. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but what? Such as is common to man. Our trials and our sufferings largely are the trials and sufferings of the people of the world. And we need to soberly accept that. It is not the promise of God that we come to Christ, all of a sudden we stop suffering. The promise of God is that in this context we will suffer and be delivered. And it's the we will be delivered part that we're supposed to put our minds on so strenuously. So that brings to the second concluding point. And that is that Christians are to be comforted and secure in their sufferings. Isn't that, isn't that the heart of all, these, of all these headings that we've been looking at, of all these texts that we've been reading? In this suffering, in this groaning, the people of God are to be comforted. The people of God are to be secure. The people of God are not to think, oh, 
I may not be able to, I may be, not be able to sustain my faith. I may, I may crash here. I, we're not to think that way. We're to have this awareness that we, sh- that we will be stable. The Lord will keep us. There's to be comfort and security for us. The third concluding remark is just to note that we Christians are called to nurture hope by pondering and looking forward, thoughtfully looking forward to the age to come. We should not be as sheep who just go about life with their face to the ground, nibbling their little bit of grass. We should be like the visionaries who stand up and look ahead. It's our responsibility to do that according to these texts. The language of the text is that of earnest expectation. The creation earnestly awaits. We who groan within ourselves eagerly awaits. We are to be more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's the goal of these passages, that we we should be eagerly expectant, not just enduring, but eagerly expectant. Verse 18 and verse 38 give some idea of how Paul came to that point. Verse 18, where Paul says, I consider, most of our English translations say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be revealed. I consider, it's the idea I calculate, I reckon, I take into account. It's a verb that involves mental processes. Not simply I know it, but I think about it, I think about it, I ponder it. And the consequence, the conclusion of my thinking is that that what's to come is so much more glorious than what we're suffering that you hardly can make a comparison. Verse 38 is the same. He uses the word, I am persuaded. In the active voice, the verb means, the verb implies an argument, an effort to persuade. Well, it's a passive verb. He says, I've felt the argument. I have been persuaded. I'm convinced. Now, remember I said that he'd already written his experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He really had experienced all of this, and he was thoughtfully persuaded. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Well, we need to be like that. We need to be pondering, calculating, thinking, comparing. It will not come naturally to us to all of a sudden be more than conquerors. That's not going to just happen by rolling along with life. That's going to happen as we ponder the very material that's in Romans chapter 8. We ponder this material and ponder this material and grasp this material. And if we're really thinking, unless we're just stones, at some point there's going to be breakthroughs of eager anticipation of all that is awaiting us. And it will, it will just change the perspective that we have on the real hardships of this life. The words that are translated to eagerly await in verse 19 and 23 and 25, someone has made this remark about them that the word conveys the idea of standing on tiptoes and craning the neck, trying to see as far into the future as you can possibly see. Well, that's, that should characterize us, where we're kind of up on our tiptoes and we're looking way, just as far ahead as we can see. And we don't ignore the present suffering. We can, God does not want us to ignore the present suffering. But he wants us to have our heads up and looking and coming more and more to this posture where we can say that we are more than conquerors. The last and the concluding point that I'd like to make is that the love 
and assurances guaranteed in this text are in Christ. They are only in Christ, and they are in Christ. The love and assurances in this text are for all those who are in Christ. Those who are weak and stumbling in Christ, those who are aged and sick in Christ, those who are most broken down by sorrows but are in Christ, those who are temperamentally disposed to discouragement or depression but they're in Christ, those who are most immature in the faith and most stumbling but they're in Christ. The assurances and the love which are in this passage are for everyone who is in Christ. But it's only for those who are in Christ. Now all of you, because you're creatures living in the world, all of you have some experience with groaning. All of you. All of you have some experience with sorrow. But you're not all in Christ. All of you are groaning, but you're not all in Christ. I'd like you to feel the, the loss of being outside of Christ in a world where everything is breaking down. Christians groan and suffer what everybody else suffer, but they have hope. They have hope of the fullness of adoption. They have hope of the resurrection and a glorified body. But those who are outside of Christ have no hope of anything other than more degeneration and ultimate death. Christians groan, but Christians groan with the awareness that the Spirit of God is sympathetic to me and is groaning with me and is going to support me and Christ is groaning with me and he's going to support me. Those of you outside of Christ, who sympathizes with you? What divinity, what all-powerful being weeps for you and groans with you? There is none if you're outside of the Lord. Christians groan in their sufferings knowing that God will work it all together for good. But if you're outside of Christ, what do you know? You do not know that it will turn out for good. There is only reason to hope that it will turn out for one stage of worse and another stage of worse and another stage of worse. There's no reason for you to think that your sufferings are just going to turn out for good. Christians who groan within themselves because of their sorrows live under this assurance that nothing can separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing, nothing can separate them. And I appeal to those of you who are outside of Christ, who are not believers in Christ, who do not see Jesus as your Lord and Savior, who are not consciously living for him, you're not in him. There is no hope for you in the groaning of this present age, and there is less prospect for your hope in the groanings of the age to come for those who are outside of the Lord Jesus. Come to him. Come to him. He has promised that he will receive everyone who comes to him. And in him are all the assurances and privileges of Romans chapter 8. Let us pray together.
Our Father, we want to bow our faces before you and magnify you and thank you that in this fallen world, you are pleased to interject grace and goodness and love and mercy, and especially that you have sent your, your son into this fallen world, that he would die for us and rise for us, break the bonds of death for us, cancel our sins. Oh, we thank you for him and how we thank you for the perspectives of this passage, and we pray that you would help us to live in such a way that we really are more than conquerors, full of faith, full of optimism, full of confidence in you and in your promises. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.